Hi, and welcome to Power Surge with Alex Epstein and Eric Dennis, the podcast where we serve up jolts of insight about the science, economics, politics, and philosophy of energy. I'm Alex Epstein of the Center for Industrial Progress, and with me is my colleague and co-host, Dr. Eric Dennis. Eric, thanks for joining me again. No problem. So today's subject uh, is really interesting, uh, especially because it's not something that most people associate with energy. And the subject is money. Now, of course, we associate it a bit with energy. I mean, we, you know, we talk about the price of energy. Is the price of oil going up? Is the price of oil going down? How much do green energies cost? How much do all the different commodities re- related to energy uh, cost? Um, but we don't often think of it in terms of the, the very fundamental financial issues in our economy, like what kind of money are we using? Should we be on a gold standard? What does the Fed do? How does that relate to us? Um, but we really do need to understand these issues because the the value of the money that we use and the nature of the money that we use has a has a profound and fundamental impact on every aspect of the economy, uh, including energy. And this uh, these fundamental economic issues about money and banking are something that Eric is particularly expert in. So. Uh, Eric, why don't you tell us about the development in Congress recently that's causing us to talk about uh, money on Power Hour. Power Up, Power Surge, sorry, get confused. Listen to Power Hour as well, though. Okay, sure. Uh, so there's H.R. 1098, which is a new piece of legislation in the House. Uh, it's called the uh, Free Competition and Currency Act. And the idea of this act um, is to primarily strip away a couple of legal impediments that exist right now um, to prevent the free issue of money, of currency, on the part of banks or any private financial institution. Uh, and the wait, idea wait, is- hold on. What do, you, what do you mean by the free? I mean, you know, we get money, you know, banks issue money all the time. It's, it's, it's free, isn't it? <laughs> right. So the, uh, the problem is that what they issue... Uh, are U.S. dollars, um, and specifically uh, Federal Reserve notes. And the problem is if they were to a different kind of money, uh, a kind of money maybe backed by gold, maybe backed by something else, um, there are special aspects of that competing currency that are very unfavorable in the current legal framework. And it's primarily, for instance, suppose you, you're a bank and you issue money backed by gold. Um, and so someone is storing his value in essentially gold or some kind of financial derivative that refers to gold. The problem is if he, if he stores his value of gold and gold appreciates over time relative to U.S. dollars and then he sells his gold, he's slapped with a capital gains tax. That's one major problem. And in reality, what's going on is not that he's necessarily made a real economic profit because he has a capital gain on gold. All that's happened is the nominal value of that gold in terms of dollars has increased, but it, the real value of that gold may not have increased at all. Uh, gold is famous for the fact that a 100 years ago, with an ounce of gold, you could buy a really nice suit. And today, with an ounce of gold, you can buy a really nice suit. If you had been taxed on the nominal gains and the dollar value of gold over that period, 
you couldn't buy a really nice suit with the the small amount that you'd have left after that hundred years of inflationary expansion. After all of those capital gains taxes, you'd, you'd only be able to to buy maybe uh, an undershirt. Yeah, so- I like I, I like that example um, because it it points to the fact that I mean many of us invest in gold, myself included, and it's it's primarily as a means of hedging against inflation. So it's it's a tool of savings. It's not like I think that when I buy gold, like some people are going to work. It's not it's not like investing in a company where the company is uh, doing all of these productive things and thus is going to eventually bring in uh you know bring in lots of revenue above its costs and make all this profit. It's just that it's this. It seems like a much safer store. So it seems like a store of, of value. So it seems as if, um, and purchasing power, I should say. So it seems as if this law, I mean, is is making it possible for people to start using alternative means of exchange instead of just being relegated to the one that operates on the Bernanke standard and his printing press, and we're at the mercy of whatever he decides. Uh, that's exactly right. That's that is the real power of money in in the way been used for thousands of years by human beings, that its value when uh, when it's backed by some commodity, its value, uh, at least it's on the supply end, the, the supply of the commodity is regulated by not the arbitrary decisions of some small set of human beings, but it's regulated by the physical facts, which is how much gold you can mine. And the, the important part from a, from a monetary perspective the important aspect of whatever emerges uh, as the money that the market prefers uh, is that people freely chosen, that they wanted to risk their own wealth, uh, to put up their, their own uh, productive earnings um, and, and gamble or uh, make a, 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 a rational decision in most cases to store their value in a particular type of commodity or um, promissory note uh, or whatever it is, they've, they've chosen it and it's gained dominance on the market. Um, and that that freedom, that free choice that goes into the kind of natural market evolution towards one particular medium of exchange um, is our best guarantee that that medium of exchange is going to serve as a relatively stable measure of value over time, and not only a stable measure, but a stable store of value. Um, so there are there are other alternatives besides gold that people may choose. There are things as exotic as electronic currencies that that aren't limited even by any kind of physical commodity, but they're still limited by some kind of inherent aspect of the the secure encrypted system uh, that's set up. Uh, to uh, kind of uh, transact in this medium of exchange. So there are all kinds of alternatives. And besides that, there are other commodities. Silver is traditionally a big money, too. Um, the important aspect is that it's something that evolves in the market and not something that's dictated by a government. Um, and So wait, just just to just draw some points of comparison here, because I think it's it, it's almost counterintuitive to people, this idea of competing currencies, because we're so used to this one currency. But uh, in my thinking, it's actually, it should be completely counterintuitive that we only have this one currency, at least mandated 
uh, by law because if you think about something like computers or even what form of internet access do we have or what grocery store you go to, all of these we believe it's completely crucial that producers be free to offer the best products uh, and that we be free to choose the ones we want and thus arises a system of competition in which the best things win. And yet in money, there's no such competition even though money has an importance of a fundamentality that's even greater than anything else uh, in the economy because it underlies every single other transaction. So if we have the wrong monetary policy, our groceries are more expensive, our energy uh, is more expensive, our internet access is more expensive, our TVs uh, are more expensive, uh, and yet it's completely outside our control and all we can do is read the papers and hear what just happened with Bernanke. So although what we're, we're talking about here might seem radical, if, if we kind of look at it from a distance, it's crazy almost that this doesn't exist in the first place. And that's why I'm heartened to hear about the legislation. Yeah. So and uh, now in a certain sense, even now, there is a limited amount of freedom. There are all kinds of currencies all over the world, and there's nothing legally preventing me from holding uh, my wealth in Swiss francs or Swedish krona um, or any other currency. The problem are these certain specific legal impediments, and that's what this H.R. 1098 addresses. Um, the main one being capital gains taxes, which wind up, as I said, not necessarily taxing a new profit, but rather just taxing a nominal increase in the value of the commodity. Um, so uh, I, I think it, it's absolutely essential that there be competition for exactly the reasons that you stated, that uh, we need to have alternatives and and there's a, uh, a natural mechanism by which those alternatives are so sorted out. And I want to point out, too, that there, there are different levels that competition can occur at. It's not only that you could compete for which particular commodity or system is set up to back the currency. Uh, in, uh, in American history, um, uh, with various kind of qualifications, uh, there was a time when there was kind of a generally accepted either a gold or a silver standard um, that was, uh, in terms of the base money, it was kind of universally accepted that money was either gold or silver, but banks would compete, uh, not changing that standard, but changing, but having different uh, notes that they would issue that would, uh, that would be backed by gold or silver, but that would rely on the credit of the individual bank. So the banks were competing uh, on, on their own credit worthiness and not even necessarily on the choice of the underlying commodity. Um, and that's an important point, that uh, the market chooses not, not only the commodity, it chooses the whole mechanism uh, by which money is actually used in society. And that's this issue of when you, when you have a bank account, when you deposit your money, um, usually nowadays and for much of history, you've gotten this great benefit, which is you don't even need to decide how to invest it in some complicated way. Uh, you get interest on that money that you have in the bank. And why do you get that interest? It's, uh, it's because the bank is not just holding your money there as if it's a warehouse. The bank is actually lending out a fraction of that money to productive enterprises. And the creditworthiness of the bank to you is basically a function of whether you think the bank is making productive loans or whether those loans are going to go bust and you then face the risk of not having 100% of what you deposited be back available to you. So um, both 
the competition for the, the basic underlying definition of what the monetary commodity is and competition given a particular monetary uh, commodity, competition in the credit worthiness of the institution that's issuing the actual notes, those two things are essential uh, for a, uh, a market-based monetary system. Okay, so let's let's connect that. I want to connect it to energy in a minute, but but before that, let's connect it to something really significant, which is the ongoing recession and then the the, the uh, housing boom and bust and financial crisis uh, that are that have led uh, to today's recession. Because what, what we're saying here basically is there should be this this competition in money, this competition in banking, what what we might call free banking. How did a lack of freedom in banking help cause the the financial crisis or did it help cause the financial crisis? I think it absolutely did. And this is really a, a deep question that would take a long time to, to really get a solid answer for. But in brief, there's, uh, there's this powerful recognition um, that was kind of reinvigorated uh, uh, by uh, monetarism, the, the, um, the monetary theory of monetarism most associated with Milton Friedman in the 70s. There was this recognition that when you have an economy-wide business fluctuation, um, and he was, he was most primarily thinking about a recession or a depression, the only thing that can really explain that when you have all of these different sectors of the economy uh, plunge at the same time, the only thing that unites them and, and can serve as a fundamental cause for that correlated recession or depression is money. Um, because all of the goods markets... Uh, that's what they have in common. It's each of the individual goods being traded against one thing, and that's money. And if there's a problem on the money side, it can simultaneously affect all of the goods markets. So in general, um, there's, there's a reason to believe that when we see a recession or depression, the, the, the source of it is ultimately monetary. And well, wait, wait. I just want to make sure. I mean, uh, I happen to think that's true, but uh, just in terms of Friedman's reasoning, I mean, why – Someone might think, well, why not? It's just, you know, one, you know, one area of business declines and then the, you know, the workers in that get laid off and that there's the kind of spiraling effect throughout the economy. Why does it have to be this, this one, uh, basic thing? Well, I mean, why well, does it have to be money? Well, because if there's not a problem with money and you get a particular sector or industry declines and, and capital uh, leaks out of that industry, that capital will go into other industries and those other industries will expand. So there's a possibility for a kind of a relative change in, in the size of different sectors in, a, in an economy that can occur even in a barter economy. You could get those kind of adjustments. But when there's this kind of more universal decline in spending on all different sectors, the, the only logical connection that could unite all of these different sectors, if there's a, uh, a general decline in spending in, on, on businesses, um, the one thing that unites them is money. All right. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense about the, um, and I'm just thinking, you know, common sense. That, that was mostly devil's advocate question, but uh, it occurred to me I didn't have a great explanation for it off the top of my head because if you just think about something like the automobile industry driving the, this classic example, I think, from uh, other people's money, you know, the buggy whip industry, 
uh, out of business. It's not as if the whole economy contracts. Indeed, it's it's certain things going into business as part of the whole economy expanding. So I guess if we have this this uh, global or at least nationwide contraction, that points to something really fundamental going on. So uh, go ahead with connecting that to the financial crisis. Right. So what we saw uh, at the end of 2008, 2009, um, is a general decline in spending. So all uh, all areas of the economy, or, or nearly all of them, experienced a substantial reduction in the amount people were spending on those areas, both, both in terms of consumption spending and investment spending. Um, and there's a good argument to be made uh, that this general decline was a result of monetary policy. And in general, when you, when you see a precipitous decline in the total level of spending in an economy, what that means is the Federal Reserve, in our case, the central bank, uh, was not uh, creating an amount of money that was consistent with the uh, amount of money that people uh, uh, want to hold. So there was, there was a banking crisis in, in 2007 and 2008, which led to increase in the amount of money that people wanted to hold. There was an increase in uncertainty. There was Wait, a what, what do you mean? What do you mean the amount people wanted to hold? Can you explain that terminology? So, yeah. So the demand for money is really a demand literally for cash balances of money in your bank account. Um, if, if you're facing greater uncertainty in life, uh, whether because there's a general banking crisis going on or some individual uh, condition in your own life, maybe you got laid off, uh, you want to maybe take your money out of more risky investments um, and at least for a time being, hold your wealth more just in cash, in a bank account. It, uh, it doesn't have to be physical cash. It can just be your deposit balance at a bank. Um, when you want to do that, when you, uh, if there's, a, and specifically, if, if there's an economy-wide uh, increase in the demand for money, um, a, a free banking system, a system based on individual banks that are increasing and decreasing uh, the amount of money they loan out based on the demand for those loans, um, and uh, in a related way, the demand for the amount of money that people want to, want to hold, there is a natural mechanism in a free banking system for a uh, an increase in the demand for money to be met on the part of the banks by a, an equal increase in the supply of money. And what happens in the current regime when we've uh, essentially outlawed free banking and we have a monetary system controlled by the government through the Federal Reserve, um, the Federal Reserve, uh, the best it can do is to try and simulate what a real free banking system would do. Um, it, it ought to try and simulate, in the face of an increase in the demand for money, it ought to simulate the response of a free banking system, would be, which would be an increase in supply for money. And if that is the case, then, even though there's increased uncertainty, uh, there, are, there are, as a result of a banking crisis or whatever other cause of, of that um, increased demand to hold money, there is a, a simultaneous increase in the supply of money, and there does not have to be a sharp decline in, uh, in nominal expenditures, in the amount of money we spend both on consumption and investment. And in that case, you, uh, when the supply and money, uh, the supply and demand for money are equilibrated in that way, 
you don't have the kind of sharp contraction we saw in 2008 and 2009. And, and so uh, my view and the view of a number of economists is that the primary culprit for the, uh, the, the kind of the size of the contraction in 2008-2009 uh, is the Federal Reserve and their monetary policy. I should also say that the original spark for all of this, the housing boom, was kind of the flip side of this. The housing boom was, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the housing boom was a result of too loose monetary policy in the early 2000s uh, when Greenspan was uh, was trying to ease us out of the dot-com uh, bubble burst. Uh, so this kind of this tandem effect of the central bank, it's, it's trying to simulate what a free banking system would do, but it doesn't have any of those important price signals that the free banking system would have when interest rates uh, for loans of all maturities would really be something determined on the market. It doesn't have those market-determined interest rates, it has basically its, uh, its kind of arbitrary guess um, uh, based on all kinds of very high-level macroeconomic estimates. And, and when it has to make these guesses and it doesn't have the free market system and money, uh, that, would, uh, that, that, would be the, uh, that would be present under a free banking system, it frequently gets it wrong. And it got it wrong in the early 2000s, uh, when money was too loose, and it got wrong in 2008, 2009, when it looks like it was too tight. And that seems to be the primary cause of the contraction. So you've definitely put forward, I would say, a, a really interesting view, but also uh, a controversial view. I mean, cer there are certain parallels between what you're saying. I mean, many parallels between what you're saying and what many uh, so-called Austrian economists say, but also certain... Uh, divergences, and I think I think uh, we could go into that, but I, I want to get back to energy. So hopefully we'll get you to blog more on some of this and talk about how how your position um, relates to both the the position of uh, liberals like Paul Krugman, but also Austrians like uh, Peter Schiff and uh, uh, and other ones today. But let's let's uh, bring it back to energy. So how does all of this uh, affect us as students of the world of, of energy? Sure. Uh well, so one of the things, I mean, the main thing we're interested in in looking at the energy markets is to try and get a gauge on what is the current supply and demand situation for a given energy commodity, uh, oil or natural gas, um, or, or any energy commodity really that's freely traded. And not only the present supply and demand, but the future supply and demand. And that's a great function that markets provide. And we talked about that a little before on Power Hour. Uh, the role of, for instance, futures markets in trying to diagnose future supply-demand uh, problems or uh, just changes in the supply-demand situation in the future. And um, dis despite how valuable those markets really could be, the problem is if, you, if you're measuring uh, energy against a, a monetary unit that is fundamentally flawed, then the, the prices for the, uh, the energy futures um, or any other kind of market-based assessment of the value of energy, those prices are not as uh, informational uh, as uh, compared to the situation in which you're, you're dealing with sound money, where over a long period of time you have a much better chance of, of retaining a, uh, a more constant value in the monetary unit. So, um, 
the value of all of these markets we have in, in telling us about, uh, should we economize on the use of oil, for instance? Is, is oil going to be scarce in the future because of, you know, negative supply shocks, because we start running out of it and, you know, these peak oil guys are right? Is that the case? Well, the futures market should tell us something about that, except now we have to disentangle that very particular question from the ever-present worry that maybe the markets are just being driven up or down because of something that's going on on the money side of the market and not on the commodity side of the market. Uh, I mean, so how how significant do you think this is? Because there's been a lot of um, I know I, I know you mentioned disentangle and it really is tangled up, and I, I doubt one could untangle it. I'm sure one can't untangle it perfectly. But what's your sense of how distortive it is? Because we see with oil prices, there's you know, there's quite a bit of fluctuation, and there's a real question of I mean, some people just attribute it to idiot speculators, which we discussed on Power Hour uh, episode seven. But there's also the issue of well, is the is the information about future supply and demand, is that really something that's in, a, in an incredibly dynamic state? Or to what extent is the, the state of our money uh, improperly in an incredibly dynamic state? What's your take on that? Uh, well, my take is that uh, it makes this question, which is much more concrete of what is the kind of the supply-demand conditions in the in, in an energy market, it makes you have to be an expert about macroeconomics to kind of come up with some theoretical estimate of what the kind of the effect of an inflationary or at some points a deflationary monetary policy is on these things. So, I mean, it, it's, it, the answer is it's extremely difficult to disentangle. Um, and, you know, speculators do as best as they can, but not only do we have uncertainty um, about kind of the present monetary policy, but also about future monetary policy. So... Um, I mean, you know, we do as best as we can, and, and, and we're motivated, obviously, by, um, by the profits we can make if we're right. So there's a, there's a great incentive to get it right and to properly diagnose future monetary policy. But ultimately, it comes down to a psychological question of, uh, the, in terms of the central bank and this, this committee of a couple of guys who have the whole economy in their hands, we have to guess, are they going to learn are they are they going to to look at new evidence and uh, kind of rethink their ideas about how to gauge the state the the uh, their own monetary policy stance? It's possible that Bernanke could read a blog post tomorrow and you know a light bulb could go off in his head and he could think, oh great, we have to stabilize nominal spending. Um, in order to best simulate the functioning of a free banking system, and, and that's how we should run monetary policy. And if he does that, you know, he, that, that would entirely change uh, the equation in, ter- in terms of how to estimate um, the, uh, the significance of, uh, you know, prices in energy futures markets. So the problems are so immense, uh, one can only come up with vaguest approximations. I like I like the example of the Bernanke blog post, and I think it, it highlights something that that is a, is a concept we need to bring here, which is the idea of central planning. So we we hear often that in the 20th century, uh, the the futility and the destructiveness of central planning was demonstrated by the Soviet Union and many other socialist countries, and that's that's certainly true. Uh, and yet, just as we lack competition 
in this money, uh, you know, the market for money just as we do uh, as against the competition that we know to be good in other markets. Same thing here. We don't have central planning and computers, and yet we uh, accept central planning and something much more fundamental than computers, uh, which is money. Now, just to make all of this um, a little more concrete, can you speculate on if this bill is passed, more broadly, if competition were introduced in, in money, if we had free banking, how would that how would that positively impact the energy space and then, um, if you want to, the rest of the economy? Sure. So uh, as I was saying a little today and before, the function of the futures markets um, is to give signals to both producers and consumers about what the future state of affairs is going to be in that particular market. And that allows us to plan. So that by its effect on the, the effect of, of futures prices and, you know, our best experts, best guesses about what that future situation will be, by its effect on the current prices of energy commodities, it causes us to either use more or use less of the commodity than we otherwise would. And that serves this coordinating role. Uh, it, it coordinates our activities, our productive activities, our consumption activities with other people's activities and with our own activities in the future. Um, and that's all good. And that requires and uh, it's best served by a stable store of value that doesn't entangle itself as much in these markets and just add this extra source of noise that makes it all the more difficult to project what's going on in the future. Um, and, and, and so the role of money is that if, if we were to transition to a legitimate free banking system, we would have a, a much more stable unit of account. Our monetary unit would be much more stable over long periods of time. Instead of going from uh, 100% purchasing power at the beginning in, say, 1913 to you know a mere 2% original purchasing power today, um, we would have something that, if history is any measure, would have a, a much, much more stable purchasing power. And we could have uh, not only better coordination over uh, um, time periods that are captured by uh, present futures markets, you know, like 15 or 20 years, it would encourage futures markets over much longer periods of time. We would have much more confidence in, uh, in contracting with other people over periods of a hundred years, you know, there were there were hundred-year contracts that existed during the time of the international gold standard, and I think the fact that nowadays there aren't these long-term contracts is an expression at a certain level of our own basic lack of confidence in our monetary order and the stability over that period of time in our financial system. Yeah, I want to expand a little bit, and, and correct me if I'm wrong about anything uh, here, but just in terms of talking about this issue of, of coordination and, and future prices, and I, I just really want to stress that this is something of profoundly concrete importance, because if you think about, and, and there's actually um, at least two ways in which I, I can think of this. One is what you mentioned earlier about the uh, just the, the fact of causing bubbles, and the fact that one really... Uh, major consequence of having central planning uh, instead of freedom and banking is that central bankers cause these bubbles. And what these bubbles do 
is they misallocate capital. And if you look at what the last two big bubbles did, the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble, um, housing slash finance bubble, we might call it, uh, they really, really misallocated uh, capital throughout the economy. And I think we can argue they really allocated it away from industrial sectors and took attention away from the fact that America has a regulatory system and uh, particularly a whole mess of green regulations and just generally business economic regulations that make it incredibly hard uh, to build things and, and, and do things. I actually blogged about this today at masterresource.org. But what happens when we have this whole inflationary policy is that we can create a bubble that makes it look like, hey, there's no problem in energy. There's no problem in these other sectors. Look, because everyone's getting rich on Wall Street. Everyone's getting rich on houses. Everyone's getting rich on dot-coms. Because it's it's completely distorted our economic knowledge, it's, it's hiding from us this major uh, malinvestment of capital and thus it's it's even further moving us away from having a proper kind of energy policy i think i think without those kinds of manipulations um there'll be a lot more attention on wow we really need to focus on being uh, more productive which means we need less government so that's that's one thing the other thing though is just in general with these these price signals it can seem like well what's what's the big deal about you know a little distortion here and a little distortion there but our whole standard of living depends on the kind of combined intelligence of everyone in the economy and that is an intelligence that operates using prices as its basic data point so every decision made in the production of oil when to produce it, how to produce it, um, whether to produce oil, whether to invest in something else. Every little tiny decision is affected by the quality of money. So even just a little diminishment in the quality of money leads to a diminishment in the quality of the decisions. And, of course, we can't project exactly what would have been had there been better money. But if we know in principle that this is something that's fundamental and that messing with it is a fundamental distorting factor, we can just imagine that the um, the negative influence – uh, of this on our energy economy uh, is profound. So, I mean, this is a crucial part uh, of the puzzle that we're interested in at the Center for Industrial Progress is having sound money. Now, that's, it's one piece of the puzzle. It's not the only one because we have to be free to actually act and build stuff and engage in industrial project with that money. But without that, without sound money, industrial progress is, is uh, severely curtailed. Absolutely. And, and just two quick points. One is that you're exactly right. Prices are really the language of the economy. That's how, that's how people communicate with each other economically. By producing more, producing less, and affecting a price, your observation of that price is how that information about the state of affairs of everybody else in the economy is communicated to you. So tampering with the price system is really like undermining the language of a society. And we all know that language, who controls the language is, is, is really who controls the direction of the society. And it's the same way in the economy. Who controls the price system has an inordinate effect on the, the long-term course of an economy. And, and the other point uh, is that not only are there these kind of present distortionary effects due to the government's control of, of the money supply, but what happens is you get, just like you were saying, these huge malinvestments which result then in a in a bust that's that's dramatically exacerbated by an uh, an overly contractionary monetary policy afterwards, you get all these uh, misallocations of capital and, and people unemployed, and this causes all of these political knock-on effects, where uh, all of the the kind of the overdrive into statism uh, 
occurs in these situations where you get unemployment benefits being extended out to two years and you get all of these political interventions that are preventing banks from foreclosing on these houses and therefore preventing all of the capital or a big chunk of the capital that was misallocated into the housing sector from finding its equilibrium level and being reallocated back out into other sectors um, because you get these people who are who are uh, sitting around collecting unemployment in the houses they don't they don't own, um, but are staying in rent free and are disincentivized from actually going out and getting a job, both because of the unemployment insurance they're getting and because they're they're living scot free in a house they don't own. <laughs> you get this huge kind of distortion of, of the basic components of, of you know, what needs to, uh, to go forward in an economy and actually produce stuff. Um, and you, you, you get into this stagnant situation where nothing seems to change and we've been riding on this extremely high unemployment level for a long time. And obviously, you know, all of this under, uh, unutilized capacity that's, that's mainly people, human beings sitting out doing nothing, you know, we could be consuming a lot more energy, building a lot more productive stuff, and we're not because of these macroeconomic problems. Yeah. So, as as I said before, this is uh, this is a really really crucial subject. Um, even though people don't usually connect it to energy and industry, it is it is fundamental to energy and industry. So, that's all we got. Uh, Eric, you ready to wrap up? Uh, yeah. I I. I just say in conclusion that um, this is something, this, this H.R. 1098 is something that's really been ne- neglected in the news. And hopefully for the reasons that we've talked about, you know, we, you can see that it's actually a fundamental um, aspect of what's behind the economic contraction. And it has profound effects on all sectors of the economy and particularly on energy since energy, uh, you know, comprises some of the most dynamically traded uh, commodities that have all kinds of uses in, in the economy, both physical uses and financial uses. Yeah, so I mean, definitely, uh, we'll be again, we'll be blogging on this more. I should say, we're we're bringing out a new blog next week called Industrial Progress Report at the Center for Industrial Progress, which right now is at centerforindustrialprogress.com. We may or may not get a shorter username, but hopefully, you can. Those are all really easy words to spell. So, Center for Industrial progress.com uh this has been a pretty long power surge but i hope you agree it's been some some important and valuable uh material so until next time i'm alex epstein he's dr eric dennis this has been power surge